the first measurement of blood pressure originated in 1733, when Sir Stephen Hales inserted a brass pipe connected to a glass tube into the artery of a horse's leg and observed the rise of blood in the column to 8 feet and 3 inches above the level of the left ventricle. Although our ability to routinely record blood pressure has become much less invasive than that in 1733, its importance remains. Cardiovascular disease remains the leading cause of death among Canadians, and hypertension is the most prevalent risk factor for cardiovascular disease in Canada. Today, our patient has primary hypertension, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by medical residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is titled, Bursting Pipes, an Approach to Primary Hypertension. Hypertension can be classified as primary hypertension, also known as essential hypertension, or secondary hypertension. Unlike secondary hypertension, which is due to underlying causes such as primary aldosteronism, pheochromocytoma, or fibromuscular dysplasia, for instance, there's no known cause for primary hypertension. Similarly, the pathophysiology of primary hypertension is multifactorial and highly complex, with no clear unifying pathophysiologic process. Primary hypertension instead is likely the consequence of multiple factors, including alterations in the RAS system, sympathetic tone, endothelial dysfunction, and peripheral vascular resistance influenced by both underlying genetic processes, race and ethnicity, as well as risk factors such as alcohol and salt intake, obesity, insulin resistance, stress, sedentary lifestyle, low potassium and calcium intake, increasing age, and chronic kidney disease. Hypertension affects millions of individuals worldwide and affects almost 1 in 4 Canadian adults, with the lifetime incidence of developing hypertension estimated to be 90%. Of hypertensive patients, 90-95% to do not have a secondary cause for their hypertension. Primary hypertension typically affects individuals between the ages of 30 to 55, and tends to affect more men than women, with an approximate 1 in 4 risk for men, and 1 in 5 risk for women between the ages of 20 and 79. Call to see a patient with primary hypertension when routine vitals reveal either an elevated systolic and or diastolic reading. As with any patient encounter, the first step will be to determine whether the patient is stable or unstable. What is their GCS? Are their ABCs stable? What are the remainder of their vitals? You will want to rule out symptoms and signs of hypertensive emergency. This includes looking for symptoms of headache, altered mental status, chest pain, dyspnea, or right upper quadrant pain. On exam, in addition to routine assessment, make sure to check bilateral blood pressures and complete a screening neurologic exam, including fundoscopy to look for papilledema, fresh flame hemorrhages, and cotton wool spots. It is also important to rule out other presentations that may present similar to hypertensive emergency with an elevated blood pressure, such as intracerebral hemorrhage, ischemic stroke, aortic dissection, or acute coronary syndromes. Once your patient is stable, you can move forward with your assessment. On history, 
you will want to look for risk factors for primary hypertension. Does the patient have an elevated BMI, consume excess alcohol, have a high sodium diet, or have limited physical activity? Do they have chronic kidney disease? Can their race or family history be contributory? Do they have known hypertension, and their acute presentation is due to them not taking their antihypertensives? You will also want to exclude secondary causes of hypertension. For renal vascular etiologies, did they have a sudden worsening of their blood pressure before the age of 30 or after 55? Other atherosclerotic disease or a marked increase in serum creatinine with use of an ACE inhibitor or ARB? In young patients with unexplained hypertension, screen for fibromuscular dysplasia. For instance, is there a family history of fibromuscular dysplasia, abdominal cervical bruise, a history of severe headaches or pulsatile tinnitus, or known vascular aneurysms or dissections? Similarly, does the patient have unexplained or marked diuretic-induced hypokalemia, or an incidental adrenal adenoma in their history, which may increase their risk of primary aldosteronism? Is the patient's hypertension paroxysmal and severe? with symptoms of catecholamine excess that may point you towards a pheochromocytoma? The first step in the workup for primary hypertension is to actually confirm the diagnosis. This requires the use of blood pressure monitoring with Hypertension Canada listing four different means of blood pressure monitoring. The two that are primarily used for diagnosis within Hypertension Canada guidelines are automated office blood pressure monitoring and ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. Automated office blood pressure, AOBP, monitoring uses an automatic oscillometric device that takes a series of blood pressure measurements without the provider present and is the preferred method of in-office measurement. Blood pressure readings are considered high if the systolic blood pressure is over or equal to 135, or diastolic blood pressure is over or equal to 85. Ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, ABPM, requires the patient to wear a 24-hour oscillometric device, which takes measurements at 20 to 30-minute intervals. Measures that are considered high are mean awake systolic blood pressure over or equal to 135, diastolic blood pressure over or equal to 85, or mean 24-hour systolic blood pressure over or equal to 130, or diastolic blood pressure over or equal to 80. Secondary blood pressure monitoring options include office blood pressure monitoring and home blood pressure monitoring. In brief, office blood pressure monitoring measurement is performed using an upper arm device with the provider in the room and blood pressure may be oscillometric, electronic, or manually measured. High readings are the classic cutoff we were taught. 140 over 90. Home blood pressure monitoring requires the patient to measure their own blood pressure twice in the morning and evening every day for seven days, discarding the first day readings and averaging the rest. Now, does a single blood pressure reading that meets one of these cutoffs mean that the patient has hypertension? Not quite. The approach to diagnosing hypertension requires multiple steps. A general approach is as follows. Step 1. Are they presenting with features of hypertensive emergency or urgency? If so, they are diagnosed with hypertension. Step 2. Is their visit 1 ambulatory office blood pressure reading systolic blood pressure over or equal to 180 or diastolic blood pressure over or equal to 110 millimeters of mercury? Then they are diagnosed with hypertension. Step 3. 
In non-diabetics, is their visit 1 mean ambulatory office blood pressure reading over or equal to 135 systolic or over or equal to 85 millimeters of mercury diastolic? Or office blood pressure monitoring over 140 over 90? If so, they should proceed with out-of-office blood pressure measurements to rule out white coat hypertension prior to the diagnosis of hypertension. Step 4. This consists of out-of-office measurements for patients with elevated in-office readings. Ambulatory blood pressure monitoring is the gold standard and preferred over home blood pressure monitoring. With ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, patients can be diagnosed with hypertension if their mean awake systolic blood pressure is over or equal to 135, or diastolic blood pressure is over or equal to 85, or mean 24-hour systolic blood pressure is over or equal to 130, or diastolic blood pressure is over or equal to 80. It is important that step 4 is completed because white coat hypertension is highly prevalent, affecting between 9 to 30% of patients with an elevated in-office blood pressure reading. If out-of-office measurements are not able to be completed, there are varying criteria for diagnosing hypertension based on in-office blood pressure readings at subsequent visits. Similarly, Hypertension Canada 2020 guidelines still uses office blood pressure monitoring readings of over or equal to 130 over 80 for diabetic patients as consideration of high. Once patients are diagnosed with hypertension, associated comorbidities that accompany or increase the risk of hypertension, as well as signs of target organ damage, should be screened for. All patients should subsequently have a urinalysis to assess for proteinuria, electrolytes and creatinine to assess for renal function, fasting blood glucose or HbA1c to rule out diabetes, a lipid panel to assess for dyslipidemia, and a standard 12-lead ECG to rule out signs of left ventricular hypertrophy. In those with diabetes, urinary albumin excretion should be assessed. Further tests such as a pregnancy test and echocardiogram, as well as screening for secondary causes, can be conducted depending on the clinical scenario. hypertension can vary, with multiple valid management options. In general, all patients should be advised on lifestyle changes to help reduce their blood pressure. Regular physical exercise targeting 30 to 60 minutes of moderate intensity exercise for 4 to 7 days per week. Weight reduction to maintain a normal body mass index and minimizing alcohol consumption to less than 2 drinks per day should be sought. Engaging in a DASH diet, a diet high in fruits, vegetables, and low-fat dairy products with minimal red meat, artificial sugars, and total unsaturated fat, and cholesterol, has been shown to reduce blood pressure readings in both those with and without elevated blood pressure. A 2001 New England Journal of Medicine study by Sachs et al. showed that combining a DASH diet with reduced sodium intake had a cumulative effect on blood pressure readings. In fact, in hypertensive patients on the DASH diet and the low-sodium level, 50 millimoles, systolic blood pressure was reduced by an average of 11.5 millimeters of mercury. Currently, Hypertension Canada recommends hypertensive individuals reduce their sodium intake to roughly 2,000 milligrams per day. Blood pressure readings at which to initiate pharmacologic management and what to target ultimately depend on the patient's overall risk. Low risk Low-risk patients are defined as those with no target organ damage or cardiovascular risk factors. Initiate pharmacologic management when the office blood pressure monitor systolic blood pressure readings are over or equal to 160 or diastolic blood pressure over or equal to 100, 
with a target of systolic blood pressure less than 140 and diastolic blood pressure of less than 90. High-risk patients. High-risk patients are those who meet any of the following. Clinical and subclinical cardiovascular disease, non-diabetic chronic kidney disease with EGFR 20 to 59, and proteinuria of less than 1 gram per day. 10-year global cardiovascular risk of over or equal to 15%, age over 75. In these patients, pharmacologic management should be initiated when systolic blood pressure is over 130 millimeters of mercury with a target systolic blood pressure of less than 120. In general, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, calcium channel blockers, and longer-acting thiazide-like diuretics are all first-line agents in all adults with uncomplicated hypertension. With reduction in cardiovascular morbidity and mortality noted in several landmark trials, including the SHEP, HOPE, ALLHAT, and LIFE trials. Beta blockers are also acceptable in patients less than 60 years old. If blood pressure is not controlled on one of the agents listed above, add-on drugs should be from one of the first-line agents. Diabetics should be treated according to Diabetes Canada guidelines. The aggressive blood pressure control noted for high-risk patients in the 2020 Hypertension Canada guidelines derives from the landmark SPRINT trial, published in 2018. Although there are caveats, the SPRINT trial showed that in those patients at high risk for cardiovascular disease without a previous stroke, end-stage renal disease, or diabetes, targeting a systolic blood pressure of less than 120 millimeters of mercury, rather than the previous target of a systolic less than 140 millimeters of mercury, resulted in less major adverse cardiac events and improved overall survival. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Bursting Pipes, an Approach to Primary Hypertension. This episode was written by Dr. Ryan Peters, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Mary Leung, internal medicine, and Dr. Zijing Wu, internal medicine. The internet work was created by Allison Lai and co-developed by Zara Morali and Leah Karnopoulos. This episode was recorded by Zara Morali and produced by Nathan Dubnik. Music production by Laxman's Vantha Mohan. If you liked this podcast, please like and subscribe at wherever you listen to podcasts. Please also check us out at theinternetwork.com for an associated infographic. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon.